you're a lively bunch. This is going to be a really fun morning. Hey, just a quick note, Brad Sarian, let me just say he's, uh, he's hitting it out of the park. He works with our high school students. Uh, he's one of the guys that teaches over there, so when you see him, give him a lot of love and appreciation anytime you see those youth staff. Uh, love on them. They do a great, great job. Um, all right, today, uh, we're going to jump in here, but before we jump into our, uh, into our text here, you know, have you ever noticed on the internet, things can float around. If you ever see an old picture of yourself, it may pop up. Someone finds it and they post it, whatever. This little video seemed to pop up this week. I think you might enjoy it. Take a look. Wow. (laughs) You didn't know we could move like that, did you? We work hard on those retreats. All right. (laughs) Please don't do it again. Nice. All right. All right. Here we go. Yeah, we really need to pray. Seriously, this is church. Um, you know, uh, as we jump in our story, this is, you're going to hear a story. This is about some pretty extraordinary love. It's crazy love. Uh, there was a young couple. They wanted to give each other a gift for Christmas. They didn't have any money. Um, but the guy, he had, uh, his most prized possession was a watch that he owned. And he wanted to give um, uh, his, his girl, he wanted to give her something that meant the world. But he didn't have any money. So he's going to do... Uh, what he thought he would never do, but love compelled him to do this. Uh, the watch was really handed down from his dad, who'd passed away, uh, but he sold that watch because he loved her so much, because she had this long, beautiful hair. She bought, he bought her this amazing comb, this thing for her hair, and uh, Christmas comes around, she comes in, and he is shocked when he notices that she has cut her hair off, because she sold her hair to buy him a gift, a band for that watch he loved so much. Uh, I know, isn't that really a depressing way to start today? <laughs> you know what it is? The story, all it is, the simple story illustrates that when you love deeply, uh, love's going to express itself somehow, sometimes no matter the cost. You're going to see that today in uh, a story with Jesus, um, and it's a little snapshot back in time, and it's, uh, the story's going to teach us a lot of things, a couple different levels. It's going to teach us about love. It's going to teach us about motivations. Motivations are why we do what we do. Actions are what we do. Motivations are why we do what we do. And be, before us and God, like what's more important to God? Our actions are motivations. What's really our motivations? You'll find that in Psalm 51. David talked about that. He says, hey, he doesn't delight in sacrifices, burnt offerings, all those things. The Lord delights in a broken and a contrite heart. You can do the right things, but your heart can be in a wrong place. So before God, the heart, it always starts with the heart. And what you'll actually find is your actions usually begin to reveal your true motivations anyway. And you're going to see this. This is an awesome story, even about motivations. Um, the story, um, as we jump into it, it's going to be, it's coming, his ministry's winding down. It's really the last Saturday of Jesus' life, and he knows it. He'd been preparing for this. Even back in John chapter 10, verse 40, you see something kind of interesting. He pulls away. He goes back to the place where it all began. 
Remember when he was baptized, his public ministry was starting. That was kind of his entrance into ministry. He was at the Jordan River. It was an intimate moment, powerful moment. Have you ever had places that you've really connected with God that have meant the world to you? And there's times that you go back to those places. Maybe it was a camp. Maybe it's a certain location. It's kind of interesting as Jesus is preparing for his last week before his death, he even goes back to a place that's actually probably personally really refreshing to him. So he goes there, he's getting ready, he's already shifting gears. His ministry is going from a public ministry, shifting to a private ministry. This chapter in the book of John is a very pivotal chapter um, because all the focus is shifting. The climax of the story is building. You're gonna see love going crazy. You're gonna see the hatred building and stirring and it all comes to head at a dinner party. And this is where we're gonna be landing today. Um, the dinner party is really taking place in a town called Bethany. Bethany is a little tiny village. Do you know the only reason you know the name Bethany? It's because Jesus did his last miracle there, his greatest miracle um, up to this point. And what was that? It was last week, Mike talked about it if you were here, where he raised someone from the dead, Lazarus. And so he goes back to this place, uh, goes back to this little town, now, somebody else lived in this little town who had a house. His name was Simon. The only thing we know about little Simon, well, he may have been big Simon, I don't know. Simon. <laughs> Simon was a leper. Um, but obviously, he's not a leper anymore. Back then, if you were a leper, this, I mean, you have open sores. You had to be an outcast. You couldn't have a house. You had to live separate from everybody else. You wouldn't infect them. So, but we know at this point, he has a home. So obviously, he gets healed. He's healed from an incurable disease. How does that happen? Wink, wink. Uh, yeah, Jesus obviously had to heal him. So you got to get the picture. You're going to the scene in Bethany. This guy, used to being an outcast, now has a dinner party in his house. That's a big deal. He probably dreamed of it. He'd watch people doing all these things. One day he hoped he could have a dinner party. Now he's got the party of parties. Because who's at his house? Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming for dinner. Guess who else is invited to this party? Lazarus, wouldn't you love to be at that party? Uh, man, the conversation. Uh, guess who else is at the party? Lazarus's two sisters. You know them by their names, Mary and Martha. Not Mary, the mother of Jesus, but Mary and Martha. It's interesting, there's other people at the dinner party. We know there's at least 17 people there. Um, the disciples are there. Judas is there. He's in a pretty cranky mood. You're going to see why. He's, he's miserable. In fact, he's miserable inside. It's finally, it's festering. And you're going to see it starting to break out at this party. So that's the scene. If you have your Bible, turn to the John chapter 12. We're going to jump in. As you, as you turn there, I want you to pay attention. You're going to notice several things as we go through this. You'll be able to follow along in your outline. about. You're going to see different reactions to Jesus and different motivations for why people are reacting the way they are reacting. And in that, you're going to see some good lessons for all of us. Um, and then we'll take it home with a few applications. John chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor, and Martha served. There's Martha. Isn't she true to form? Right on schedule serving. If you've ever read the Bible or in the book of Luke, there's a story about Martha. What is she doing in this story? Working. Where do you find her? In the kitchen, working, over the stove, uh, cooking, cleaning, making it happen. That's kind of what Martha does. Martha's still doing that. 
She's doing it here. Know what's kind of crazy as you kind of get the picture of this? Whose house is this? It's not Martha's house, but who's doing all the work? Martha. She's a wonderful kind of lady, isn't she? <laughs> now, don't you love those people? It's not even their house. They come over, they're cooking, they're cleaning, they're taking care of everything. I love to invite those people over. They're great. <laughs> Martha truly has matured, though. In this story, she's not scolded. She's not chastised. She is matured. Martha is doing what Martha does best. She has a built-in hospitality. She truly has a gift. She has a gift of caring for people, making them feel welcome, loving them, caring for them. In fact, it's a really honorable gift. What's different about Martha now than when we saw her before, she's no longer, she's not trying to do this to earn any approval. She's doing it because she already has approval. Now she's giving thanks. You have to understand the picture of it. Jesus means everything to her. And she's got her family around her. It's a big deal. So she's giving her best. She's loving um, Jesus through service. Martin Luther King talked about service. He said it like this. Everybody can be great because anybody can serve. It's true, isn't it? You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You only need to have a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. Martha's a great example. She's giving her best. She's doing what she does best. It's a good picture for us. We have people who model that. I have people who model that in my life all the time. There's people modeling it for us right now. A lot of you are sitting in here because people are modeling that. They're taking care of your kids as you're sitting in here right now. There's people up here before church started praying for you, praying for this church, praying for this valley, serving you behind the scenes. You never know it. There's people uh, who come and they just work, SWAT team. They come and they just come up here, work, save the church tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, you're not going to see them behind the scenes, but they serve. That's Martha. Martha's modeling something for all of us. And in this party, who, who are they really honoring at this party? It's Jesus, and so she's giving her best. So that's what we got. We have Martha there. Now, who else is at this party? Uh, and it says, Martha is serving while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. So what's Lazarus doing? Chilling, hanging out. <laughs> Being a friend. Now, I am telling you, I thought about this as I was sitting there. It's like, if you could really think through that conversation, what would that dinner conversation have been? Wouldn't you have loved to heard Lazarus and Jesus kind of going back and forth? What are they saying? Uh, you know, especially Jesus knowing he's approaching death. Someone who just came back, he brought him back. It's like, Lazarus, uh, did you see it? Did you see what the Father made there? And Lazarus' eyes light up probably, oh my, you don't even know. Like, he goes, well, I probably do know. But uh, <laughs> Jesus probably saying thing, isn't he brilliant? Father's brilliant. You saw it, didn't you? And he's, Lazarus probably tearing up like, I, I would never have, I don't even have words to describe what I saw. Jesus probably had to say something like, listen, I am so sorry. You probably felt yourself getting called back to your body. I know, it was a bummer. I have to call you back, you know, but I needed you. I had to show off my power, and, and, uh, but don't worry, Lazarus, we'll send you back soon. Uh, he's like, you know what, for you, I would do it. This is the one thing that made it worth it. I'd sit with you anytime. Could you imagine the conversation? Who knows how it went? But you know it had to be pretty interesting. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in that conversation. But Lazarus is doing what he should. You know, he's sitting there. Jesus needed friendship at that time. He's preparing for his departure. Probably one of his last good moments with people he cared about. 
an intimate scene two miles outside of Jerusalem. The place he's going to march is millions of people are literally descending on that city, preparing for Passover when he would die. So he's sitting in this there with uh, Lazarus, experiencing that. Um, you know, you're going to notice something. There, three people are doing something very specific. They're giving back. You've got Martha, you've got Lazarus, and you have Mary. If you're following in your outline, that's really what, it's, what you're going to notice for them. What do they do? They gave back. I'm going to show you how, what Mary does. Then this, is, this is kind of a highlight part of the story here. Mary, you've got to check this out. What Mary does, she's, she's, it's probably like siblings who are opposite. You've met a lot of those, right? Um, Martha, you know, cool, clean, calculated, specific, on time, practical. Mary's probably expressive, um, more emotional, probably more verbal, all these things. But Mary, in her mind, she's, her mind has had to be spinning. Um, if, and you've got to understand, when Lazarus died... It's not like he died and then he fell to the floor and then people dropped, did some CPR, pumped his chest, breathed into his mouth, and he gets up like, oh, that was a close one. Thank you so much. He stretches it off. No, he was dead, dead, like four days dead, wrapped up. It was dead, dead. And so you got to understand when, when you have a funeral for somebody you love, you're mourning their loss for days, and now they're sitting at a table and eating. I don't think any of us have a mind to how to even apprehend that. She probably hasn't slept. Her mind is spinning. She's ecstatic her brother is back. She may be more ecstatic that the one who brought her brother back is there. She knows who Jesus is. She believes him. In fact, she even knows what he's going to be doing. This man, she has heard about his love. She's seen him touch other people, love other people. Now this love has gone from a place where she not just knows it for them, she has experienced it in her own life in the deepest possible way where he has loved that family to a place where she is just so overwhelmed with how in the world can anybody do this? And why would they do it? For, we're so insignificant. Why would, they, why would he do this for us? How do you, you know, at that point, what do you do when you have someone who's laid his life down and then he's brought your brother back to life? Is that a thank you note? Doesn't that seem trite? Hey, by the way, hey, thanks so much for, you know, bringing him back. You don't, that doesn't cover it. It's like, what do you, she's probably been thinking, how do I even express my gratitude? Well, she does something that's interesting. She comes to the dinner party to Simon's house, and she brings something. Some point in this dinner, um, they're all reclining around the table. The guys are around there. Um, but when she approaches the table, she brings this alabaster jar, and people know what that is. Uh, they have, their minds probably start spinning. People probably stop talking because they know what's in that jar. Uh, it's a certain kind of oil, a certain kind of perfume that's brought out only on certain occasions. One, when someone's dead and you're, you're anointing them as their body before they're buried, or occasionally they bring it out and they would literally anoint kings. The only reason it was so expensive, this stuff, that you don't just carry this around. You don't put a little on before you go out for dinner. You don't just play with this stuff. This stuff is ridiculously expensive. It doesn't sound great. It's called nard. Uh, so I, I bet they bottled it differently. I don't know what they, they did. Um, but literally, this stuff was so expensive because the only place they could get it, it's literally in the Himalayas between China and Tibet. This plant grew. They get these roots. 
and they have to bring it, and then they crush it up in this oil, and they make this gorgeous perfume out of it, this stuff that would smell amazing. Well, do you understand the shipping costs on that? Like, there's no trains, planes, there's no automobiles. It's like you're hightailing it. Someone's walking up there and getting that stuff. So if you have any of this, the cost of it is literally astronomical. So expensive, they say, that it's, it's, it's like, hey, how much you make in a year? Yeah, that's how much it's going to cost for a little jar of this stuff. That's how much. So a lot of times people would save uh, during their lifetime so their family wouldn't have, a, have to buy it. They'd keep putting money away, and it'd be part of their burial that they'd save up for. But she brings this out during the dinner party. You think, what's she going to do? Um, she going to take some, start putting some on Jesus just as a thank you, as a deep picture of her love for him? But when she comes out, and in fact, two other gospels talk about this, Matthew and also the book of Mark, and one of them, it says that she literally breaks it. And she doesn't just dab some on there and see how he reacts. She takes the bottle and she pours it. She pours it out, all of it. She pours it on his head. It's going all over his shoulders. In this book, in the book of John, it says she's pouring it on his feet. And she does something crazy, uh, just almost another act of utter humility, where it's almost like she is so lost in emotion. This is like, how do you thank the man who brought back a family member? How do you do that? And she just breaks that, starts pouring it out. She's probably in tears. She drops to her knees. She drops her hair because Jewish women, they wouldn't drop their hair in public only for a husband in private. It was an act of utter humility. She drops her hair and she begins just wiping his feet with her hair. And I'm telling you, it was an oily, muddy, dirty mess, but she didn't care. What was she doing? She gave him everything she had. That was a picture of her saying, I give it all to you because what do I have apart from you? It's a powerful scene. The way the book of uh, John writes it, it says, verse 3, Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet. She wiped his feet with her hair, and she gives it all. What's Mary doing? What's her motive? She's worshiping. She's worshiping. She's giving everything back that Jesus gave. He owed him nothing. But they owed everything, and this is her way of giving it back. Now, verse 3 also says, And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. This stuff was so potent, so powerful, they said it would literally last a couple weeks on a body. It would last weeks. Powerful stuff. This is what's really interesting to me. As you think about this, everywhere Jesus went for the next week, what fragrance went with him? The most expensive most precious fragrance that was available that day. And it was given in the most truest sense of worship. That's how powerful one act of worship can be. When everyone deserts him, he could still smell something. When he's being, you know, going to those trials, being uh, unjustly tried, that smells with him. People around him could smell it. He could smell it. As he's being whipped, beaten, hung on a cross, that gorgeous aroma was with him. Even as those soldiers auctioned off his clothes, it was on those. It's like at least there's one awesome thing he could hold on to. 
when no one else is around. And it came through the most pure, genuine act of worship. I love it. It's powerful stuff. Verse 4, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Now, what's he saying? You know, it, you have this tender, powerful moment, and it's almost like someone's taking a glass of ice water and just throwing it. It kills the mood. It's like it's one of those things that in an awesome moment, someone's trying to kill the mood instantly. Now, is Judas saying this because he really loves the poor? He cares about the poor? Absolutely not. You know it by the very next verse that's written in here. So this isn't even about the poor. We know Jesus talks about the poor. He has a heart for the poor. But this act of worship, what's going on here has nothing to do with that. And Jesus responds. He says, or the, and John it explains it in verse 6. It says, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. That's his M.O. What's he been doing for three years? John tells us he's just been skimming off the top. And you're getting a picture into the tortured inside of Judas. This guy is irritated, frustrated. It's all coming to an end. Um, what did he give? During this, this whole episode that's going on at this dinner party, the only thing he gives is attitude. And he throws it out there. His motive is selfishness. That's what's truly driving this guy. As you think about Judas, people wonder, did he just make like a last-minute mistake in his life and betray Jesus? No, something's been brewing and festering for a while. This story's another illustration of it. It starts picking it up. Judas, when he, he kind of entered into this whole uh, thing with Jesus, the disciples have been going around. Jesus has been talking about a kingdom. Judas really believed that this is going to be some earthly kingdom. He's on the inside circle here. He'll be in a position of advantage. He's got kind of a select seat at the table. When this thing starts going south in his mind, where this isn't some earthly kingdom, Jesus is going to go, he's going to die? What's going to happen to us? So what in the world am I, I what have I done with my life for three years? It's crazy that you can have two people, seen in the story, someone like Mary, and you have someone like Judas, who have been around Jesus, saw the same things, have seen the same miracles, heard the same messages, the same stories, have experienced the same care and love from Jesus, but are reacting totally differently. But for Judas, there's something on the inside. He's always trying to live for himself. There's something inside that's driving him. When he realized there's no earthly kingdom that's being established right now, that this thing's going south, when he makes this little blurt at the dinner party, what's going on is that inside he's thinking, man, if I could get out of this thing, if I could sell that thing, at least put the money in the keeper, I could skim some off the top and I could probably be out of here. At least get paid for something for these three years. It's so crazy that the book of Matthew, which tells this story also, the very next verse, it tells us what Judas did that night. This is in Matthew chapter 26, it's verse 14. It says, Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, Hey, what are you going to give me? What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted him out 30 silver coins, which really wasn't worth that much. You have to get the picture. The dinner scene comes. Jesus responds. And what he said to Judas was this. He says, hey, leave her alone. 
It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You'll always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. And with that, Jesus defends Mary. He kind of puts Judas directly in his place. And Judas has an opportunity now. You're either going to repent and get things right, or you're going to harden your heart even more. And he chooses option B. Because at some point, the napkin goes down, he gets up, and he walks out. He walks for two miles in the dark. That's some good thinking time. But with every step that he's taking, his heart is getting harder and harder. By the time he makes it to Jerusalem, that's that little scene in the book of Matthew where he finds the chief priest. He goes, I know you're looking for him. I'm willing to give him up, but what's it, what are you going to give me for it? What's driving him still? He's selfish. He wants some cash. He's irritated. Take him. Take Jesus. He's out for himself. You know, in this book of John and in Jesus' life, there is this part of the series is called Conflict and Crisis because you see there's conflict, there's crisis. This is the crisis of belief. This is a climax of events. Um, That's how it always is with Jesus, though. We all come to a crisis of belief with him. And he had it. There's a third group. I'm going to mention the next two very briefly. But the third group, there's a third motivation here, and it's the crowd. And you're going to notice they start giving attention. Their motivation is curiosity. Now, you got to understand what's going on here. Verse 9, it says, Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So all these people gathering in Jerusalem, the talk of the city is, Oh, have you heard what Jesus did? He brought someone back from the dead, like from the dead dead. Like he's back. It's Lazarus. So word is spreading. Uh, Doesn't even need a 24-hour news cycle to make this happen. Paparazzi, everybody else, anybody and everybody's probably dropping in on this place. And what you get this picture outside the home of Simon, the crowds begin to gather during this intimate dinner party. Here they come. Checking this out. Now you have to understand, there's part of us, we all get it. Wouldn't you like to see what someone looks like who came back from the dead? What if their skin was starting to peel? Is it still peeling? Like, are they kind of zombie-looking-ish? Are they totally restored? Does he look better than before? Uh, What's he saying? What's he talking about? So we get it. We could imagine what the front pages of the National Enquirer would have, pictures of Lazarus or what it, you know, how, how would it be sensationalized? What would it look like? Who knows? But the frenzy is totally there, uh, but they're motivated by curiosity. Curiosity can lead to good things, but oftentimes, if you're just following the curiosity of a mob or a crowd, the mood of a crowd changes quickly. You can see it in a riot. You can see it in different things. When crowds come, it can shift fast. So curiosity alone is not always the best motivating factor. In, the, in an article in the LA Times this week, on Thursday, there's an article that says, more Americans mix and match religion uh, polls find. So they pull all these people. So out of all these people, a third of them attend religious services at more than one location. I'll check this one out, check this one out. 24% of them worship outside their faith. I believe this, but I like how they worship better, so I'm going to do that. Um, 65% of them believed in some kind of supernatural experience. They're very interested in spiritual things, something out there. Just the idea of spiritual things is interesting, but it's going to bounce around. And so they had two quotes, one from a professor at USC, one from UCLA. UCLA guy says, well, once people become acquainted with various religions, it's so easy to mix and match. 
almost giving like, yeah, you get it, right? Take a little from here, take a little from here, and then you make your own. It's the American way. Um, USC prof says that kind of religious individualism is the American religion. So there, culturally, that's kind of what's accepted. That's kind of what you do. You kind of follow what's interesting. If it's not interesting, go somewhere else. If there's a good experience there, go check that out. Do you like this belief? Pull a little bit from that. You like this one? Pull a little bit from that. But I'm telling you, when your days get dark, things come down to it, and you need something to lean on, it's not going to mean anything. The challenge of following a crowd or the mob or just living with curiosity alone is that it's usually short-term, it's controlled by something outside of you, and it's just always going to be chasing a new experience, so you never truly get grounded. The question is, if everybody you knew moved away, would you still be pursuing the Lord? If the people closest to you died or they fell away from the faith for some reason, would you still be there? Do you believe it because you believe it? Or do you believe it because I believe it, a church like this believes it, the people you know believe it? The whole heart behind this thing is your faith is your faith, but you got to know it. I don't want you to believe this because I believe it, that this church believes it. I want you to believe it because it's true. And if you're in a place where you're, it's okay to be questioning and searching it out. You might be here because you're doing that. That's totally okay. In fact, we truly believe that truth is not afraid of hard questions. So ask away. Look at it. You doubt the Bible? Go for it. Test its authenticity. Check the bibliographic evidence. Start taking a little journey, and I guarantee you're going to come to one place. It'll be a crisis of belief. Because once the evidence becomes so overwhelming, it really, it's really not about, hey, there's, there's obviously evidence. It's come down to between you and the Lord. Go for it. So it's a good lesson from the crowd. There's one more group of people, final motivator in this story, and it's the religious leaders. What do they give? They give a death sentence. What's their motivation? It's fear. Verse 10, so the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. As well as who, by the way? Who else do they want to kill? Yeah, they want to get rid of Jesus. So they're planning to kill Lazarus also. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. Now, obviously, even in this crowd, some people were actually coming to a real faith in Christ. And that's what, that was what was kind of getting these guys upset. Um, this is really a bizarre scene if you really get it. Some of these chief priests had different beliefs. There's a group of religious leaders called the Sadducees. In seminary, they gave us a little way to remember that. They, they're called Sadducees because they're sad, you see. Why are they so sad? Well, they don't believe in miracles. They don't believe in resurrections. I would be depressed too. What kind of God are you worshiping if you can't really do anything? It is depressing. But once Jesus comes along and he's doing miracles, he's talking about resurrection, their whole theological position is being challenged. Now they've got even an even bigger problem because they have someone who has literally been resurrected. That really cramps their religious beliefs, right? So if you can't compete with the evidence, what do you do with the evidence? Oh, get rid of it. They're going to get rid of the evidence. And they're going to do it as quick as they can. Do you see how twisted... It's getting. Everything's coming to a climax. Everything's coming to a head. They're even plotting murder of Lazarus because they're threatened theologically. They're also threatened politically, their own religious structure. They're worried about that. They're motivated by fear. 
The wrong motivation always drives us to the wrong action. When we're motivated by fear, we're going to act out in wrong ways. Uh, if we're afraid we might not get a promotion you're hoping for, it's easy to act in fear and try and undermine a coworker because we've given over to our fear. Um, you're afraid uh, for your son to grow up and become independent, so you hold on too tight. And now, because of your fear, you're driving him even away farther. Fear can move us to do the wrong thing. When our motivations go sideways, it's going to act out in wrong ways. Moses dealt with it. Remember, God called him to set the Egyptians free. There's a moment of fear. He encounters this, uh, I mean, it, it, he's motivated by anger. He encounters this one soldier, and what's he do? Instead, he's motivated by anger, and he strikes out. He kills this guy, acts out in anger. So when we deal with this whole issue of motivations, this is a really key one. The story highlights three people, Mary, Lazarus, and Martha. In fact, Judas got even the other disciples to go along with his line of reasoning. You see this in the book of Matthew and Mark. When Judas says, hey, shouldn't you give that to the poor? They're like, hey, yeah, that's a good idea. Shouldn't you give that? And they start going in. But in this story, the people who gave back in the most pure way were Martha, Mary, Lazarus. They did it in each of their own unique way, but each of them were worshiping in the truest way. So how do we get there? Is there really a worship that is so powerful that it can overwhelm our fear? It can make it seem so insignificant. There is. Like living in a place of right motivation. So as we, as we take this home, like how do we, how do, we do this? How do we, how do we live, check our motivation, respond and give back to God in the purest way? Um, I picked two things out of the story to kind of illustrate and put it. I'm going to give you the first one. Try and paint a picture of it. Number one is give back. How do you return the love to God? It starts by doing this. You give back. And here's your motivation. You're giving back because of God's love. Not for God's love. Okay? As you worship, as you give back to God, you're doing it because of his love not for his love. Now, what does this mean? I, I struggled with how to even paint a picture of this. How do you illustrate this? What's this mean? Um, I was sitting at Starbucks working on this uh, part of the week, and uh, my wife called, and she says, hey, um, driving back home, I've got the baby. Do you want to see him? I'm like, yes, I need a break. So she's going to be swinging by, and she's going to be bringing my son. He's 14 months old, so cute. His name's Caleb, and uh, he's been walking for a while, so he is fully mobile. Uh, we call him Tonka now because he's like nonstop, rough and tumble. Um, but here he comes. So I see her car pull in, uh, and she gets him out of the car, and she sets him on the sidewalk. Before she entered in, I was looking through the glass doors, and she, I could see her lean down, and I know she, what she's saying. She goes, hey, where's your daddy? Where's your dad? Where's daddy at? Uh, and instantly, his eyes are open, and he's scanning. He's looking, and I'm at this table inside. And then it, it was this one little moment where his eyes catch. He sees it. Or he sees me sitting there, and he sees it. And in that moment, his eyes just bug. They bug big. And I, I don't know what sound it was. Ah! You know, it's, I, don't, I can't do it, but I loved it. Um, little sound. And he starts jumping. He starts clapping. Like, it was probably the biggest, like, welcome I've ever gotten from this little guy. So she opens the door. Uh, he comes running in. I come running. He grabs my legs. I pick him up, and I'm playing with him in Starbucks. And it was an awesome little moment. And as I look back on that, you know, there's, you, there's days, and like those are like little breakthrough moments. 
He does that for mom all the time because mom is his world. But, you know, there's moments like, oh, there's dad too. And I got one of those. I loved it. Uh, and I got one of those little moments. But it's interesting. As a baby, when you first have a baby, you feed them and they sleep. What do they give you back? A dirty diaper. They feed them and they sleep and they give you back. That's all you're really going to get. But pretty soon they start growing up and that love begins to return. And little glimpses, little moments, that was one of those little moments that I got to receive his love. He didn't plan that. He didn't think on the way over, well, if I see my dad, I could do this. I'll act all excited, and then he'll pick me up and play with me. Uh, if he did, he's a lot smarter than I think. Um, but it was a spontaneous thing. His response was a response from the love I've been giving him over his lifetime. And now he sees, and he gets excited. Usually. No, no, I don't know if it's usually. Most of the time he gets excited, right? But do you see the picture of that? I think it is an awesome picture of the love of God for us. Who, is, who actually initiated this whole relationship? He did. It was his idea. Well, who started this whole process? Oh, he did. Who made you? Oh, he did. Who decided when you'd be born? He did. Who uniquely designed you? He did. Who uniquely, strategically placed people in your life that would brag about himself? Oh, he did that. Who gave you experiences that one day would lead you to be sitting in a place like this and hearing about him? He did. Who put people, who put you on people's minds so they'd be praying for you? Oh, he did that. And one day, your eyes got opened. Maybe your eyes are getting open today, but one day they got opened. And all of a sudden, you began to feel emotion or something in your mind even just clicked or changed and you're getting it. And now, you listen differently, you're responding differently, you're feeling emotions you've never felt before and you're beginning to give back a small taste of what's been given to you. And when you worship like that, you're giving back because of his love, not for his love. And that's how we're always supposed to live. Do you know the challenge that we face with modern Christianity? Um, we deal with it so much. It's performance Christianity where we think if we can pray, if you pray enough, you'll, you'll earn his love. He'll appreciate you more. He will love you more. He'll take care of you more. Do you understand that the whole message, uh, one of the reasons Mary in this story is so overwhelmed because she gets it, that he has been consistently laying his life out. And even this week, he's going to be doing it even more, laying himself out, and she finally gets it. And we finally get the fact that he doesn't love us because we're good. He loves us because he's good. It deals all with the nature of God. It's all about him. It's not about us. All he can do is love because he's good. He is initiator. He is originator. He is consistent in it. If you have a Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 55. Great little verse in here. As you're going there, just keep in mind this. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. He first loved us. Isaiah 55 paints an awesome picture. Let's just jump to verse 10. Isaiah 55, 10. 
says, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. What picture is he painting? Hey, rain comes, the storm clouds gather, but rain falls. It hits the earth and it does something amazing. As it waters the earth, green things start to appear. Pretty soon the hillsides around this area are gonna burst forth in green. Don't you love this time of year? Things are gonna get green around here. But it's a picture that God sends rain. We walk outside, it's all being evaporated, it's going right back. Things bloom and come forth. And God says, listen, that rain is a picture of something. Picture of my very nature, of how I act and I work. I send my love, it's gonna touch lives, it's gonna do the very thing I want it to do, and my creation will send it right back to me. It says, so it is, in verse 11, so it is my word that goes out from my mouth, it will not return to me empty, but it's gonna accomplish what I desire. And here, underline this, and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. That's powerful and awesome. God's promise is in, as inevitable as the falling rain. It is what he does because that's his nature. He consistently loves. He consistently gives because he's truly good. That is his nature to do it. He doesn't love you because you're good. He loves you because he is good. And the more you understand his goodness, how truly crazy good, consistent, faithful he is, it will yield goodness in your life and it's gonna motivate you to worship in the most pure way. So when you're challenged and you're coming into a place like this, like, oh, I've ignored God this whole week, I'll try and earn his favor right now. You're not trying to earn favor here. You cannot get more favor than you already have. And that's the part of worship. Come back to the place where, hey, stop earning it, receive it. Our job Receive God's love, send it back to him, pass it on to other people. We've got the greatest job in the world. That's what we get. Romans 11 says it like this, 35 and 36. It says, who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? See what it's saying? We didn't first give to God. He always is the initiator. For from him, and then through him, and then to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. So we receive, then we give it back in every way. Do you understand this? This comes in every place, even in the place where you feel convicted of something. The goodness of God is right behind it. Do you realize that? You've been convicted about even your relational time with God. Do you know what's right behind that? His goodness is promising you intimacy. His goodness is driving you to himself so that you can truly experience his goodness in deeper ways because that's all he can do. Uh, dealing with lustful thoughts and things like that, he convicts you of that. You know what he's producing in your life? A purity that you could never produce on your own. He's calling you to what seems the impossible, but he's, he's bringing that. So even that conviction is the deepest sense of invitation to a life of purity. Because from him and to him and through him, he's gonna do what you could never do. So when we worship, hey, you know what? We worship because he's good, not to try to earn his favor or his goodness. It's a good thing. So hey, when you go outside and you see it's raining, hey, remind yourself, 
the nature of God. When you see the moon shining back, the, the moon never creates its own light. All it can do is reflect the light of the sun. Awesome reminder. That's our job. It's our DNA to give back and to thank. So that's what we do. The second one I'll give you briefly, second insight from this story. Um, one has kind of our dealing with how we relate to God. This may relate to how you may relate to other people in this season. Um, God may put something on your mind, but here it is. Look for one-time opportunities to show a great love. Look for one-time opportunities to show a great love. What Mary did was probably a once-in-a-lifetime thing. I'm sure it was. Mary didn't have the luxury of saying, well, I don't know if I should do it at this party. Maybe I should do it when there's not as many people around. This is a one-time shot. This is one dinner in his honor. People around or people not, he, she's going for it. She has to do it. There is no waiting. There are certain things in life that come around one time. There are one-time opportunities. And so God may call you to do something extravagant in one-time ways. I don't know what that would be. Who knows what that could be? Maybe you've been called to adopt someone into your family. It's pretty extravagant. You may not do that every week, but maybe someone has a need. Is that movie Blindside Out? Have you seen that? How many of you have seen that movie? Um, I haven't seen it yet, heard, read about it, but powerful picture when someone in a family extends love and grace to someone who needed it. Pretty extravagant one-time thing. Maybe it's meeting a need, caring for somebody, making a memory, an appearance. Maybe it's taking a week off work because someone needs something. Maybe it's someone in your neighborhood. Maybe it's someone within your family. Something comes around only once and you need to be there. Maybe someone's struggling at Christmas this year. Maybe you need to be there for that. Maybe it's uh, giving something you own because someone needs something. Maybe it's offering a room in your house to someone who has a need. I don't know. That's between you and the Lord. But part of who we are is because we receive so much, there's got to be a place for, that we're willing to give, even in great ways sometimes when God calls us to do that. So whether you're making a gift to the church, a gift to somebody specific, whether it's even a gift of your time, I don't know what it is. But are you open to God leading you to what that could be even this season? So what is that? So let's take, we have a lot to think about, don't we? A lot of good things to think about. So right now, we're going we're gonna to respond by giving you a chance to give back to the Lord. The service is ending with us taking communion together. It's going to be a time for you um, to really examine your own heart, to examine um, and say, hey, what do you want to give back? And I just want to encourage you during communion that, as you, uh, as you enter in, as you do this, um, that you just say, hey, for the Lord, you want this to be the purest, purest thing from you. And I just, want, I, I just want you to do this. Take a deep breath and exhale. You know why you can relax? You have nothing to earn. You have no one to impress. You don't have to try and impress God right now. You get to just come and be there's no pretense. I don't care how far you've slipped. This is your first day back. Breathe relaxed. Because you're coming into the arms of someone who loves you, and that love cannot be challenged or changed. It can't. So come and receive freely from the one who loves to give you deeply. So let me pray uh, and, 
after I pray, you're welcome to go to any of the tables. I'd encourage you, you can go with your family. If you prefer to go with your family, you can go alone. You can come and kneel at the front, spend some time with the Lord. But let me lead us in prayer, and then I'll dismiss us to the table. Well, Father, today is a day, it's a good day. It's a good day to remember your goodness. It's a good day to remember a scene back in time where people expressed in the deepest way and the, the way that they were uniquely led to do in that moment. Right now, we believe that you're still leading people. You're still drawing people to yourself. I pray that you'd continue to open our eyes to your true nature that would make us run in an abandoned way to you. It's like my little son, his eyes open, gets excited that there'd be moments in our life that we truly begin to glimpse how good you truly are, how faithful you truly are, how consistent you truly are. That when we come to places like this, we don't have to come to earn anything. We come to receive that we could even reflect what we've received from you. So I pray right now that there'd be a relaxed sense over everyone in this room. For those who are feeling uncomfortable because they know they're far from you, you just start by saying, I give you my life, Jesus. I accept what you, you did on that cross, and you rose and proved yourself. So I run into your arms. I surrender my own sin, and I do what I could never do, which is I need you to help clean my life up. But today I give you my life. If you've done that, you're part of the family. You're welcome to take communion. There's a little piece of bread. There's a little cup. You take those. The bread is a picture of the brokenness of Christ, that he would lay anything down for you, anything. And he has. So he says, remember this when you take that. Picture that cup is really a picture of a new promise, the promise that as deep as his blood, that he will never leave. In fact, he has given you the gift of the Holy Spirit when you became a Christian. There's a way of relating with God that's incomprehensible, that he will live within. And you get to walk in that inheritance. Communion pictures that. So, fathers, we take this. I pray that you'd remind us of the things you want to remind us of. Set us free in the ways we need to be set free, that we glimpse and taste your power and your nature and understand you more deeply, that we could live more freely. And we ask this, Lord, in your name. Amen. You're free to go to the table.